Welcome to Blaze Health Podcast, an interactive space for the Black community and allies to learn about mental health and holistic wellness techniques. Get ready to illuminate your mind. already know the vibes it is the second episode of the blaze health podcast if you're listening thank you for listening i'm so excited because our topic today is going to be about depression sadness feeling sad right and the truth of the matter is we all experience sadness like sadness is one of the seven universal emotions experienced by people We all feel it, we all go through it, and it's actually okay to be sad. And it might sound weird when I say that, but I mean it in the sense of not always experiencing one emotion all the time. So I like to always reflect on like my favorite shows growing up. So for for all my people listening, if you've ever seen Jimmy Neutron, there was this one episode about where they were experiencing happiness. That was the only emotion that they were going to experience for the rest of their life. And I think it was called like the happy, happy show, show, the happy show, show, something like that. And their one goal was that you only experience happiness because that will cure everything. But the show, I think, did a good job of portraying the fact that it's not okay to experience too much of one thing. Like, everyone was trying to experience this happiness, but it ended up, like, taking over the world. And, like, it was just very wild because everyone was essentially brainwashed and they were only happy and they weren't experiencing nothing else. So it kind of stripped away their feelings of other emotions. And the point of the matter is, Jimmy Neutron, great show, and I think they definitely were teaching what they needed to teach in a very creative way. Because the same way how we can't just experience happiness is the same way we cannot just experience sadness and sit in it. Like, it's okay to feel various emotions. We shouldn't have one. Because with these varying emotions, it allows us to build empathy, it allows us to express ourselves, it allows us to figure out who we are in these moments and how to cope with it. But with sadness, although it is healthy on a certain spectrum, it is not healthy when we're sitting in it and we're letting it build for extended periods of time. That's when you start to see a negative impact to our health, which could lead to chronic illnesses later on, such as cancer, stroke, diabetes, etc., etc. It all ties down to our mental health and how we are treating our bodies and our holistic wellness. And when we are specifically talking about the Black community in relation to depression, um, I thought it was very interesting, this image that I found from the Washington Post. I'm going to make sure that I link it in the show notes. But they have an image that shows the sharp increase in anxiety and depression spikes um, after viewing the police killing of George Floyd, which makes sense. You know, 
We are seeing our people dying in the streets from the hands of police brutality, white supremacy, and that was one person. You're thinking of, as a community, how we need to heal and the images that we're constantly seeing in the media, how that has a direct impact on our mental health and how we navigate the world. And this image shows an increase from 36% to 41% of the black community showing signs of depressive disorders and clinical depression. That represents roughly 1.4 million more people. And this was back in July, so I can only imagine how much more that number may have increased just based off of existing as a black person in, in society and in the world. It is very hard being black because a lot of times society is not there to support us. So I wanted to make sure that this episode centers the black community, the experiences that we go through and have a black mental health professional to help us understand these feelings and learn about ways that we can continue to protect our mental health. And I am so, so excited to introduce the guest speaker, Dr. Topaz Sampson, such an amazing and phenomenal person. Okay, y'all? Dr. Sampson is a board-certified forensic-trained adult psychiatrist. Dr. Sampson received her Bachelor of Science from Spelman College and earned her medical degree from Wright State University Boonshoff School of Medicine. She completed her general psychiatry residency training at Baylor College of Medicine's Menninger Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Thereafter, she returned to her home state of New York to complete her forensic psychiatry fellowship at SUNY Upstate Medical University. Dr. Sampson has had the distinguished honor of serving as the national president of the Student National Medical Association, the SNMA, during her last year in medical school. While in residency, she was inducted into the Gold Humanism Honor Society, served as chief resident, and upon graduation, was awarded the Uyghur Khan Award for Excellence. While attending the Black Psychiatrists of America, BPA, Transcultural Psychiatry Conference in 2018, she was awarded the Distinguished Jean Spurlock, MD, Memorial Award for Outstanding Qualities in Psychiatry During Residency. Dr. Sampson is very proud to have testified as an expert witness in New York State several times for various forensic psychiatry assessments. Dr. Sampson currently serves as the Secretary of the BPA, and she previously served as a member and training trustee for the organization. She presently works doing telepsychiatry with Array Behavioral Care, which allows her to bring her personal mission to life, serving the underserved. Dr. Sampson takes great pride in making competent mental health care accessible to those in need. Her professional interests include community mental health, advocacy, and forensic psychiatry. Like, wow, y'all. Isn't, isn't she just amazing? Like, round of applause. It is such an honor to introduce Dr. Topaz Sampson and have y'all listen to the dynamic, powerful, and invigorating conversation that we had. Hello, Dr. Sampson. I'm really excited for you to be my guest for this podcast episode. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well today. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. I'm so excited for you to be here too, like literally smiling very, very hard. 
Me too, me too. <laughs> Before we start, if you could just like, you know, introduce yourself, let us know who you are, why are you passionate about mental health, and just a brief overview of the work that you do. Sure. So hi, everyone out there. My name is Dr. Topaz Sampson, and I'm a board-certified forensic-trained adult psychiatrist. I was born in Guyana, which is a Caribbean nation in South America, and I was raised in Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn, we go hard, we go hard, you know? Um, so <laughs> I received my undergrad degree from Spelman College and medical school degree from Wright State University, Boonshaw School of Medicine. And then I did my psychiatry residency training at Baylor College of Medicine. Um, that's the Menninger Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. And then after residency, I completed a forensic psychiatry fellowship at SUNY Upstate Medical University. Woo, that is a lot of schooling. All right, so enough of that. So I became really passionate about mental health in medical school. And what's really interesting is that I didn't really actually go into medical school with plans to specialize in psychiatry. I was initially interested in emergency medicine. However, when I did my psychiatry rotation during my third year of medical school, I just fell in love with it. Um, I was rotating at an outpatient clinic and what I observed that helped me fall in love with psychiatry is just seeing how competent psychiatric care can improve the lives of patients, but not only patients, but also their families. So one thing that I think that really stood out to me on this rotation is that you know, mental illness doesn't just affect the person, it affects the family, the community, everyone that's a part of that person's life. And at that time, I we were I was with my resident, and we were treating a young father. And over time, he improved, and he shared how because of his improvement in his mental health, he was able to be present for his daughter's birthday, and that was not always the case. And that just really, um, I was thinking about that young daughter, how because of what we did she was able to have her father present for her birthday and that just really touched me and you know what that feeling that i got during that rotation i remember leaving those days and that feeling i just wanted to really bottle it up and carry that feeling for the rest of my working days you know they say if you do a job that um, really brings you joy. It doesn't feel like you're working a day in your life. And so that feeling that I was feeling from my psychiatry rotation, I hadn't really felt it on my other rotations. You know, it, those felt like I was just going through the motion. So I kind of really stopped and realized, mm-hmm, this feeling I want to keep forever. And I decided to switch um, interest in um, going to psychiatry. So that's where that passion comes from. Um, but also while I was on that rotation, I noticed that the things we were treating, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, and other types of mental illness, they weren't really being talked about um, in my community, in the Black community. And I could, you know, as I'm going through the rotation, I could think of like family or friends that I thought could definitely benefit from the treatment. And it was 
all of those feelings together that helped me decide, you know what, I think I can be a really great advocate um, for the black community in advocating for mental health. I know it can be a really scary process, but mental illness doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care what you look like, where you're from, none of that. So I just felt like, wait a minute, we need to also get this care. And um, I'm just really thankful that, man, that was about hmm, almost 10 years ago or a little less than 10 years ago when all this happened. And now today I'm able to live out that dream that I had to advocate for mental health for all people, but especially underserved groups, which include you know, the black community. Right now, I do telepsychiatry, which is essentially seeing patients via a secure video chat, um, kind of like FaceTime, but again, it's secure. And I'm really excited to do this work because again, I get to bring competent mental health care and make it accessible to patients. Imagine, you know, you have a single parent who is juggling a lot. They may not be able to make it to an appointment or you might have um, a lot of different situations that make accessing mental health care difficult and I thought wow this is a really cool way to bridge technology and medicine and now a patient can be in the comfort of their home and still get that care and so I'm really blessed that I've um, found a company that allows me to deliver this mental health care beautiful thank you so much for sharing your story and i love how your passion was really able to just drive like your journey and what you do currently like it's just so beautiful um and just thank you for the work that you do because there is definitely that stigma within our community about like you know certain illnesses not being talked about and just like not having access to the resources like like you said i love how you mentioned that family aspect how like mental health, it's not just the individual, but it affects all your loved ones around you. What were your thoughts on intergenerational trauma? Like how that may manifest in a family, uh, just because of this, the stigma we see in, in our community. Those are all key points, and that's really what I wanted to address. And in terms of intergenerational trauma, oh man, um, I can recall having this is when I was in my training um, in, in residency at, uh, in Houston. And I recall I was in an outpatient clinic seeing patients and I went out to call one of my patients and I noticed she had huge sunglasses on and she had a hoodie put all the way up, drawstrings pulled tight as if trying to really, you know, be invisible, not be seen, not be recognized in that space. So that's the first thing I noticed. So this patient comes into the room and, you know, kind of disrobes and I could finally see the person. And, you know, I, I keep it real, you know, that's what I think is the best thing to do in medicine. So I made a comment about it. And I said, I noticed you look like you were trying to um, hide your identity in the weight room. Cause it was obvious, you know, and she said, um, you know, she said, yeah, but then she started talking more about her family and how they said, oh, if you go there, something bad is going to happen to you. Oh, if you go see that doctor, you crazy or just all these things. And I was just so um, saddened 
because this young woman was before she even got to my room was already battling you know some of the negative kind of stereotypes that comes with psychiatry but it's not to be honest um uh, to be honest psychiatry has had a history of uh, perpetrating just negative um stereotypes and things about black people so i get where it was coming from is what i understand both sides because guess what before i was a doctor i've been a black woman so i understand where the family was coming from about wanting to protect her and being worried about what would happen if she went to see the psychiatrist but at the same time as a medical doctor i understand how that's not necessarily helpful so back to your question the intergenerational trauma i could imagine that maybe she had and i'm just you know using my imagination here i don't know but i can imagine this young lady might have had a family member who had a horrible experience for whatever reason we can that could be a whole other podcast about what can happen but had a horrible experience in the hospital um, receiving psychiatric care and that message has been passed down in the family oh no you don't go in to see doctors oh no you, you know we are going to do something else before we go to the hospital because there's concern and worry about actually um bad outcomes or just bad treatment um, in the black community. So that is how I think that intergenerational trauma of bad experiences, particularly interfacing with psychiatric care can impact patients today because, you know, your family is who you bounce off ideas. What should I do? This is happening to me. And um, unfortunately for that young lady that impacted her first interaction with me but we were able to talk through it and what I like to do is what I call uh, what we call psychoeducation so I was able to explain to her you know this is a safe space I'm a medical doctor my goal here today is to do xyz and really um, break down some of those walls and give her some good information to take back to her family um, so that the next time it won't be as a scary experience so that's how I think sometimes intergenerational trauma impacts care right thank you like I think that definitely helped give us a perspective even on the clinical side like you're seeing this from your patients and as like your role as a physician and like advocating for your patients and caring for them you're able to help start breaking that that cycle like all right this is a safe space for you like you said and like let's change the way uh you have always been taught about this and let's try to make a new path for you you know absolutely I think that's great and the work that you're doing is just so powerful. Yeah, so powerful. You had mentioned the accessibility of services like with telehealth, especially with, you know, COVID and everything. What would you say for people who don't have financial support to, to like afford professional help? What would you say are some other holistic techniques and maybe like free resources that would be helpful for just combating mental illness in general? Yeah, you know, I'm really saddened that this is even an issue, you know, in this in this day and age, that if you don't have enough money, then you might not be able to access care or enough resources. So that's a whole nother issue that, um, you know, that needs to be addressed. So unfortunately, there aren't a lot of um, 
or ways to access mental health care if you don't have resources. But what I can say is, in general, sunshine is your friend. So there is um, a type of depression called seasonal affective disorder, which is essentially having depressed symptoms primarily in the winter months. Um, and we're, you know, at the spring, summertime, these mood symptoms resolve, um, more or less. And so that's why I say the sun is your friend, the outdoors, these type of things. And one of the treatments for seasonal affective disorder is UV light therapy. So if you are living, I don't know, in a cold state where it's, you know, uh, well, I grew up in New York City, so I remember waking up early to go to school is dark, come home is dark. It's like, where is the sun today? And that really does impact you. So, you know, one of the treatments for easy treatment, I'm saying for seasonal affective disorder is UV light therapy. You can get this at like Walmart, which is great why I'm sharing it. You just need 10,000 lux of light. And this is something you can use 20 minutes um, during the day to get that light energy and, and help if you have that kind of depression. And, um, but honestly, otherwise, I wouldn't recommend um, treating anything more than mild depression without the help of a professional because depression can become serious. It can snowball into suicidal thinking and action. So it's really important if you are um, someone struggling with this or you know someone struggling with this that you seek out ways to get professional help. Fortunately, there are clinics around the country that do take uninsured or uh, Medicaid insurance. So I would encourage people to do their research and see if they can get into these types of clinics. But there, unfortunately, there's not a lot of just like free resources that I would want someone to kind of navigate on their own. Because again, it can really be serious and it's really just best to involve a professional to help guide you. Of course, there's apps and all kinds of other things, but I don't know, I can't uh, speak on behalf of them because I don't know their effectiveness per se. In general, I say if you can get outside, the, it's warming up around the country, get outside, get outdoors, safely wear your mask, get vaccinated, all that jazz. But in general, one free thing you could do is absorb the sun in a safe way, you know, use your sunscreen, but use the sun to your advantage for especially seasonal affective disorder. Right. Awesome. Thank you so much, especially with the UV light. I never even knew about that. Um, I think that would be very helpful because I have a couple of friends myself who I know um, had uh, like, you know, the seasonal depression, like when we had moved away for college and stuff. So that was very helpful. And is it, it's safe to just use like on your skin or you said it's only like for 10 minutes. Like what happens like, I guess if you go over. So it's only recommended, I think for about 20, 20, 30 minutes like once a day. It's not like something you just sit under a whole day, like you're sunbathing, but just having that light kind of, you know, enter your, your eyes and receptors and all that jazz would be helpful. And that's why I just brought it up because this is something you can find in Target, Walmart. They sell it and you don't necessarily need to have like a prescription to get to it. And again, it's something people may not know, but it's simple. It's a simple way to overcome if you're having that kind of depression. But again, it's good to make sure 
it's you know have a mental health professional assess you to make sure it's that is the type of depression you're having but um in general that's kind of how it works okay that's awesome and i know you already mentioned one form of depression are there any other forms of depression and in general what would you say are some signs or symptoms red flags to look out for that could indicate okay i may have depression i may need to seek some help okay yes so i recently did a talk um, about depression particularly in the black community but there are several different types of depression um the number one type is going to be major depressive disorder and before i go into all the different types in general the symptoms are similar it's really what distinguishes them is time frame when it happens and you'll see more when i talk about it but at the end i'll kind of just run through the symptoms to look for so number one is most common major depressive disorder um, then there's something called persistent depressive disorder and this is really different in that it lasts it's more chronic lasting at least two years of kind of these persistent depressive symptoms number three there is bipolar depression and this is unlike unipolar depression um, there is a manic component to the mood so there is um, elevation at times but what people should realize is that for those who have bipolar disorder most of the time they're in a depressed state it's only um you know in between that they have may have these manic cycles where they're full of energy and it's everything's great not sleeping no need for sleep but for the most part they're living in um, a depression as well so there's bipolar depression number four there's postpartum depression and so this is where um you know pregnancy is a huge hormonal shift for women i don't think people really understand like what is going on like it's a big deal hormones are very strong they're very powerful and with pregnancy it can bring on significant hormonal shifts that that can affect a woman's mood and it can be more than just baby blues being tired or sleep deprived in those first couple weeks it can snowball into even psychosis and these type of things so we have to look out for um postpartum depression then there's premenstrual dysphoric disorder i'm not talking about pms this is something different so you know we know menstrual cycles can cause like pms symptoms like irritability fatigue anxiety but premenstrual dysphoric disorder produces those similar s symptoms but it's more pronounced where someone is distributing you know um major changes in their appetite their sleep um they're going down more of a severe depression path um, and so that's another type we talked a bit about seasonal affective disorder um, already but again that's where someone can experience depression sleepiness weight gain during the winter months but feel like perfectly fine in the spring and then there's also um, what i'd say last is situational or like an adjustment disorder with depressed features so that means there's a specific event or situation, um, such as like a death of a loved one, illness, COVID even, 
And it usually, the depressed symptoms usually start within three months of that situation. But once the situation is resolved, the depression goes away, you know? So um, those are like the seven, I say, major types of depression. And when it comes to symptoms, what you're looking for is, you know, of course, low mood, depressed mood. We're also looking for a lack of interest in your regular hobbies. I ask my patients, oh, what do you like to do? They might say, oh, I used to like to knit. I used to like to crochet. I used to like to paint. And they're not, they're just not interested in their hobbies. It doesn't bring them joy. You want to look for changes in appetite. And I mean eating more or eating less. And this is a really good, you know, sign to look for because it's objective. Sometimes it's hard for people to think, oh, am I feeling down? But you know when your clothes are fitting differently, right? You know when it's loose. You know when it's too tight. You know when the scale changes. And so that can be a, a symptom. Also changes in sleep. Sleeping all day and you're still tired or not being able to sleep. Waking up early in the morning, kind of just unable to get rest. And then we... Can, it can also slow, you know, snowball into poor concentration, poor energy, excessive feelings of guilt, feeling that you know, you're a burden to your friends or your family, or just having so much guilt about life experiences that it's weighing you down. And then that comes to the point where people start feeling hopeless about the future. No matter what changes, they still feel like there's nothing that can take away this horrible feeling that they have and then ultimately that gets to suicidal thinking and thoughts where someone is saying or having the thought that it the only way to stop this pain is to end my life so in general these are all the signs and symptoms of all the types of depression I mentioned it's really the difference is how long uh, what time frame is it happening? Is it in a pregnant woman? You know, so on and so forth. But they all are really examining those uh, signs and symptoms. It's important, like you said, to make sure you can have someone who can guide you and make sure you're getting an accurate diagnosis. Because if you're misdiagnosed, that's probably going to be really bad. Right, because the treatment is really, in general, the treatment is the same, but it really does matter. And sometimes people think, or they don't know what psychiatry is, or they think like we're not real doctors, but there, it's, it's, this is deep. And that's just talking about depression. We haven't even talked about other types of mental illness. And so you really do need the help of a professional. No, you know, Dr. Google, please utilize us. This is what we're here for. We can get you treated. Awesome. Thank you. Out of all the depression forms, is there a certain type that's most prevalent in teenagers, adults, or it could just depend? I would say major MDD, major depressive disorder, is the most common. I think when we're talking about our younger folks, and I, I primarily see adults. I'm not trained as a child adolescent psychiatrist, but when I, in my training, I did see young people and you want to look for depression there too because it's not like someone turns 18 or 21 and then all of a sudden like poof um, these things might have been manifesting from childhood and so in I'd say teenagers adolescents school aged people you want to look for a change in school like adults uh, work is really like 
the red flag when something's going on wrong in our lives. It shows up at work. Well, for teenagers, it shows up at school. Grades start going down. People are not wanting to be in their extracurricular activities all of a sudden. Friend groups changes. But for most parents, they notice a decline in parents and teachers changing grades. And so you want to watch out for like bullying, that be that cyber or in person. But cyberbullying is a real thing, especially in this social media age. There's a lot of FOMO, fear of missing out. Oh man, we can go on and on. But um, for teenagers, young adults, you want to look for changes um, at school in, in their schoolwork. That I would say is a big red flag that something is happening with this young person and you want to, don't ignore it. You want to see what's going on with your, our young people because depression and anxiety and all these things can manifest in our younger populations. And what would you say if you, with all of those symptoms uh, you just said and the different types, if you have a loved one and you see they may be experiencing these symptoms or you already know they're diagnosed with depression, like what would you say is like one of the best ways to just support a loved one through, through their depression? It's really important to be involved and not leave the person to kind of figure it out because they're already, you know, ill. We have to remember that this is an illness, so they're not well. They're not thinking straight. They're not in their best uh, state of mind to sometimes think through what to do next. So you as a family member or friend who is observing this, you might have a better sense of like, wait a minute. Sometimes it's hard to know. It's hard to tell what's going on with yourself. So for family members, I would always want to make you a part of the treatment plan if the person is willing you come on in you know sit down let's let's figure this out the first thing I would say to family members especially in the black community speaking about this community because I'm a part of it and you know I've like I said I've been a black woman before I was a doctor and I know how it can be so first validate their feelings what they're going through is real suffering. It's not made up. It's not in their head. They're not trying to give you a hard time. That's not it. Like, we just need to X out that whole train of thought, okay? So don't say the words like fake, you know. Like, these things are what patients tell me. Like, my family said, this is not real. I'm making this up. Don't say these things. It's, it really undermines and does. it's not helpful. So saying things like, even if you don't, if you, you know, it's hard for you to understand, just saying things like, I see that you're going through something difficult. You know, it looks like you're hurting. It looks like you're having a hard time, right? And the, the tricky thing about mental illness is that you can't see it. It's not like a cut where you can see someone bleeding and you're like, ooh, that I can understand that pain. So you have to keep that in mind that even though you can't see it, you're looking for the cuts or the bruises or the broken bones, this doesn't work like that. So I think the best thing family members can do is just recognize like something is not right. This person needs help and validate their feelings. Okay. Number two, I say go with them to the appointment. Why? Because like the story I mentioned before with my patient, just parking in the parking lot, knowing you're going to go see the psychiatrist, walking up the stairs, sitting in the weight room can be a lot because of so many reasons. 
so why not try to help that moment by going with the person and that doesn't mean you have to like go into the appointment room with them you could just wait with them in the wait room just help bring down their anxiety and tell them it's going to be okay you're going to go in you're going to see this doctor i'm going to be right here when you get back and then we'll go for lunch or something like that just kind of normalize it so it doesn't have to be this scary process you know so i think those are two simple things i don't want to overwhelm families but just two simple things just by validating their feelings and trying to like go with them to the appointment help them find the appointment drive them something you just take away one of the things they might have to do with this already sometimes difficult medical system to navigate like how do i even you know find a doctor so those are some things i think family members can do Although it's simple, I think it's so powerful because that validation is something we tend to not have growing up, you know, in our community. It's like, you can be going through stuff and with that stigma, it's like, oh no, it's not real. Like, you know, you're just going through something. Oh, pass, like drink tea, like all of this. And it's Go to like- church, pray. I probably, like, I'm really, <laughs> right. And it's like, I'm like going through something. I need help, you know? And nobody so, is hearing me. <laughs> right. And they, it's just like, oh no, it's not real. It's not real. That's not it. And it's like, I feel like with that first step of the validation, like, okay, I hear what you are saying to me. What are some next steps we could do to like help you? Like, it'll make you not feel so like weird or caged up inside, so. And alone. Right, right. I think it could be very scary when you're going through something and like you don't have someone to talk through it or validate it. So I think like as we start to try to change the culture of how like we support our loved ones, we can definitely see more people getting the help they need to just help their holistic wellness. Like, you know, before things get really bad, it's like you were able to tackle it early. Oh, please, can I make a point about tackling it early? Because I think this is very important for viewers. Okay, so with men, what I see too often in our community is people presenting too late. By that, I mean the problem has been going on years now and it's been untreated. So I wanna, sometimes I have to make the parallel to physical medicine, and I'm doing air quotes, because that's something that is easier to understand. So imagine if someone has high blood pressure, hypertension, and they are not getting treated. They continue, and their illness is gonna worsen. And if they show up to the hospital with a blood pressure of, I don't know, 170 over 100, getting close to 200, getting close to having a really bad outcome like a stroke. The prognosis or the likelihood that you're gonna have a favorable outcome if you come to the hospital and did not treat your your high blood pressure and let it get really bad, really bad, the outcome is going to be worse. Like I said, now you're at risk for stroke. You might have a stroke and you might have deficits where you have weakness, all these things that could have been prevented if we had treatment sooner. Now, I want your viewers to think of mental illness the same way because that's how it affects the body. So if this person waits, and this is what I find happens too often where we're presenting in the emergency room, because we're having like a heart attack or a stroke now, but with mental illness. 
when you wait it's just not going to be as good of an outcome what we want to do is have people present earlier when it's first starting so we can prevent it from getting to a severe point and have a better outcome and so I think that's one message that I would love for your viewers to do is to not wait do not wait don't play around with mental illness you need to get assistance as soon as you know something is wrong because like any type of illness it only worsens over time untreated and the prognosis is likely worse so we want to get you treated early right definitely thank you so much that was such an important message that i think the more we talk about it the the better we'll see it in future generations because yeah i feel like we just really don't talk about it till it's too late and no we need to be happy and healthy from young to old, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. It just really, you know, pains me. Like I said, growing up in New York City, you see everything. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with just like riding the trains and seeing people that are homeless or not well and you, and I, I remember when I was a little girl, I, I would sometimes wonder like, how did they get to this point? Did, you know, no one in their family, friends, like, how did they get to this point? This could have been, and now as a psychiatrist, I'm like, this, it didn't have to be like this. We could have really, you know, intervened a lot sooner. And so that really hurts my heart because I know that we have treatment available for all type of mental illness. And I just want people to get the treatment because it doesn't have to be, you know, so horrible. Yeah. Yeah, no, I can definitely relate. I was also born in Brooklyn, uh, Flatbush. So okay. like just seeing that, yeah, seeing that, like I had those same thoughts growing up, like where where did like the system fail this person? Like how did they end up here, you know? And it, it's hard because a lot of times it is people in our community just on the street. And there's, that could be a whole nother uh, episode, but the stigma of just, homeless people and how they think, oh, if you give them money, they're just buying drugs or, oh, it's this. It's like, this person is just trying to survive another day. Like, you know, like mm -hmm. from your standpoint, like you, you're definitely more privileged than them. Like, you know, you have access to resources. They don't even have like food and water or a safe place to lay their head at night. So mm -hmm. I think, yeah, it's very important to think about that and think about ways, like you said, we can make it more accessible and prevent this from happening. Cause it's like, it does not need to be like this at all. Like, oh. I guess to switch gears a little bit, cause we're talking about like, you know, systems and systems of oppression and just how we can prevent things. I know you said you have a specialty in forensic psychiatry. Is there any type of mental health disorders you see primarily in a criminal justice setting? Yes. There, there absolutely is. So I just want to back up and kind of define what forensic psychiatry is. It is the intersection of the mental health and the law. So it's a subspecialty of psychiatry. So, you know, there's other subspecialties like child adolescent psychiatry, addiction, geriatric, so on and so forth. And so this is just another niche area within the specialty of psychiatry and again it's the intersection of the mental of mental health and the law and if you really think about it uh the way psychiatry is practiced in america you definitely interact with the law 
imagine when someone is involuntarily hospitalized well what are you doing you're taking away their right to liberty in that instance you're saying that you are going to be in this hospital for this time and you are not able to leave like you are taking away their liberty and so that in itself involuntary hospitalization which happens all the time in this country is you are using laws to be able to do that so that's one interaction and in terms of the types of like diagnoses that I saw when I was in my forensic training is primarily psychotic presentations and I shudder to think that if possibly these people were treated sooner they might have had a different outcome because when I'm seeing folks in a forensic setting that where now their justice involved they have committed a crime okay and under the law in general you a person who is incarcerated or in prison they have a right to treatment okay and so even in that setting there are doctors who are treating them for physical illness and mental illness but overall overwhelmingly while I was in training I saw diagnosis such as schizophrenia and like schizoaffective disorder and those are essentially the types of mental illness where there are if you would say breaks in reality you know people are having hallucinations and are really disorganized and just having they're not in touch with reality by and large I saw a lot of psychosis either organically or substance induced but at the end of the day they had a break with reality and that might have contributed to their illegal behavior some other types of disorders that you can also see in justice involved settings like prisons and jails and so on are personality disorders so the main one you see is um, antisocial disorder and that's really a pattern of where someone has really disregard for and violates like the rights of others they have no empathy so you can see that's kind of like a what we would kind of describe as like a criminal mindset you just don't care like you know you rob a bank and I don't care it's put in layman's terms but also sometimes you might see like a borderline personality disorder and for borderline personality that's really a pattern of instability in interpersonal relationships and self-image they have a lot of impulsivity and self-harm type of behaviors so overall I see a lot of psychosis that's the majority of it different flavors of diagnoses of psychotic disorders and also personality disorders like antisocial personality disorder wow yeah and just hearing like because I know you said like the detachment from reality I can only imagine how hard it's for for someone to like be in that type of setting and and also be detached and not have someone advocate for them so like I guess within just your specialty, like what are some of the ways you help advocate for those those marginalized patients? Because it's like, okay, they're dealing with these mental health illnesses. How are they able to stand up for themselves? Yes, yeah. So if you know you, if you have a loved one who has mental illness and finds themselves incarcerated, you want to make sure you tell somebody that they have mental illness. They may not be able to vocalize it for whatever reason you need to let them know because like I mentioned they have a right to treatment just because they're in jail doesn't mean they just 
lay in the corner and suffer. That's that's not what's happening here. And so it needs to be known in their file somewhere that they have a mental illness, a diagnosis, they were seeing a doctor. Bring the records, present the receipts, whatever you have to do to make sure that's known so that they can be kind of housed in the right area. Because what we all should know is that within a jail or prison, those who have serious mental illness like psychotic disorder or bipolar disorder, other very serious disorders, they may not be able to be housed or kept with the general population because they are likely to be victims of violence or like other schemes that they just get themselves caught into because they're, like I said, not able, they're having a break from reality. So they're going to be housed separately, more kind of like treatment type of environment, still, you know, serving their sentence and all of that, but housed separately. And that's very important because like I said, they can be victimized, assaulted, beat up because they're with other inmates who have all their faculties, if you will. So it's important to advocate for them and make sure they're in the right setting so they can get treatment in that way. So that's like the main thing I would say after that, once it is known, they really are treated separately and made sure that they are having a treatment component. So I think that's the best thing families can do is still be a part of the treatment team, even if you are, you know, miles away by keep calling them, communicating, talking to them on the phone, uh, letting them know what's going on home with granny, with auntie, so so-and-so had a birthday. That support and knowing that there's people outside of where you are that still love you and care for you and are rooting for you is really helpful to someone's mental health while they're incarcerated because that in itself, the trauma and isolation of being incarcerated itself can cause mental illness like depression or anxiety so it's just really important that to not like abandon these people because they're incarcerated yes they did do something that was wrong and that's why they're in jail or prison but you can still have a humane approach in how to deal with your family members and let them know that they still have people outside that care about them and are waiting for them Wow, yeah, that's very important. I think having that strong social support, like you said, and I know how you said a lot of your patients, you see have psychosis. Would you say that that coexists with depression? Like, how would you describe the manifestation process? Is it like, usually they have depression first and it leads to it, or did they always have psychosis? You can have a presentation where someone has depression and it got so severe that now their mind are playing tricks on them and they can start seeing and hearing things. So that can be like what we call major depressive disorder, severe with psychotic features. Or you can have a diagnosis like schizoaffective disorder, which is a combination of psychosis and mood component like depression or even mania. So it can be, co- it can be both. It can be, you know, it can happen at the same time or periods of times. So we have all these different disorders, names that I'm throwing out, and they kind of classify exactly, you know, how someone's presentation is. And sometimes you don't know what came first. 
But nonetheless, we're going to treat the symptoms and you can see comorbid psychosis and depression. In fact, you know, for people who have been diagnosed with schizophrenia, one of like the initial components is that insight and realization that you're losing touch with reality and that makes you like freaking depressed it's like what the hell is happening to me and those people who are like really high functioning before and then they start declining you want to look out for depression because they can have some awareness that something's happening to them and that makes them depressed in itself so it is very convoluted and complex um, but I think it's cool and I'm glad that I get to kind of do this work. But again, more reasons that you want to not try to figure this out on your own and get and seek the help of a professional mental health provider that can guide you and help, you know, help get you treated. Are you currently available to get any more patients for telehealth? And if so, what's the best way for people to like reach you? The way medicine works and telehealth is that I can take care of people where I'm licensed in their state. So you have to have a medical license for each state. And I have an outpatient clinic in Pittsburgh where I see patients there. For those people in that Pittsburgh community, the clinic is definitely handing out flyers with my face and my credentials so people can see who the psychiatrist is. So if you're in that area, you'll definitely probably see that. But otherwise, the other places I do telepsych work is like in the emergency room or in the hospitals of different states. So you won't necessarily like sign up for that. Uh, I just will be like on those iPads, roll into your hospital room and I might be the psychiatrist that day. But my outpatient clinic in Pittsburgh is the best way if someone is living there and listening to this, you really want to reach out to the Still Rocks clinic and there I can see you. That would be the best way. Thank you so much, Dr. Sampson. I really enjoyed our conversation and I feel like you gave such amazing advice and insight that's going to benefit our, my listeners and just the black community, young black people, old black people, like just the black community. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you again, Blaze Health Podcast for featuring me. It's been an honor. Thank you so much. I hope that you all enjoyed that conversation and you were able to learn something new that you could take back and spread to your own respective communities. I think it's very important that as we continue these conversations with mental health, that we also have the resources in order to access everything that we're talking about. So in the show notes, I'm gonna make sure that I leave a whole bunch of links that Dr. Sampson shared with me on how you can access affordable mental health services. Some of those websites are going to be psychologytoday.com if you're looking for a psychotherapist for talk therapy and you can actually filter by insurance and zip code. There is also blackmentalhealth.com and blackpsychiatrist.org if you're specifically looking for a black psychiatrist to treat you. There's also therapyforblackgirls.com, therapyforblackmen.org, mhanational.org slash finding then a hyphen therapy, and then borishensonfoundation.org slash local virtual groups. This was a foundation started by Taraji P. Henson, and they're currently doing virtual support groups for the youth. So definitely check that out because they also have 
scholarships throughout the year to help you be able to afford therapy sessions. In addition, just to echo what Dr. Sampson said, there are also a whole bunch of student health centers or federally qualified health centers in your area. And with it being federally qualified, that basically means that it's a community-based center that is funded by the government that will provide either free mental health services or low-cost mental health services. So make sure that you are looking up if there is a federally qualified health center in your area. If you need any assistance with locating a center, feel free to email me at blazehealthpod at gmail.com and I'll be more than happy to help you if you're wherever you are in the world. In addition, the National Alliance on Mental Illness has a helpline that offers free assistance and advice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can reach the helpline at one 800 950 6264. And for more information, you can visit NAMI.org, NAMI.org, or text NAMI, NAMI, to 741 741. And don't forget, we are building our mental health toolkits together. In the first episode, we talked about the importance of grounding ourselves, and I love how Dr. Sampson loves the sun and how light therapy can help us. So if you have access to the sun, make sure you can get outside, ground yourself. If you do not have access to sunlight, definitely make sure y'all get that UV light that Dr. Sampson said from Walmart or Target. I'm also going to make sure in the show notes that I provide links if you want to buy your own online. So our new addition to our toolkit was that light therapy. Our journal prompt today is going to be, what do I keep doing that keeps hurting? Why do I keep repeating this behavior? So make sure you reflect on that in journal, whether you're doing a physical journal or your voice journaling, make sure you reflect on that question because journaling is another technique that can help us process our emotions. And as always, you can reach me at blazehealthpod at gmail.com. You can stay updated with the podcast through all the social media accounts. So Instagram is blaze.health. Twitter is at blazehealthpod. Facebook is the Blaze Health Podcast. I will also link that in the show notes. And make sure you join the Fireside Chat Squad. So that's a private Facebook group for my listeners who want to continue the conversation just beyond these episodes and that wraps it up y'all i hope you enjoyed the dj ambra mix coming up you already know it's ambra and the don dj ambra amber however you call me that's it bye you already know it's your favorite dj dj ambra on the ones and twos dj Sing around, now people gather around, now people jump around.